Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, it's Alan, back with another content warning. I didn't think this episode was so bad. Not sure what everybody's worried about, but it may not be your cup of tea. So listen to discretion is advised. I am on call uh, for the city, so if uh, anything major or significant arises, uh, I'll have to excuse myself in the middle, so I apologize in advance. I appreciate that. I I also really appreciate you coming down here today and talking to us. Thank you. It's nice to Um, be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So So, um, we're going to talk about, you know— what what you have what what's been on record and you know you have you finally have the book which is a I I do it's uh it was a little trek trying to locate it you know from 1983 uh, this uh, book has been through several hands already this is Martin Moharo he's a detective in the LAPD's homicide division he's sitting across from Alan Sachs in a conference room back in 2018 I was just having a difficult time locating the actual files. And simply because so many hands have touched it and uh, so many detectives have looked at it, sometimes we lose track of where they actually leave it. To me, this is, um, it's pretty emotional because, you know, I know Peter, but I also, you know, know the story and the story is always, it's a story. But when I see this and it says, Peter Ivers, Murder book. That's that's real, man. It's that should be that's freaking real. Alan's in shock. Since he became obsessed with Peter Ivor's death, one piece of the puzzle has been missing. This case file. The cops have labeled it the Peter Ivor's murder book. How depressing is that? 
It's incredible that Detective Moharo even has it. The book has been missing for decades until somehow he found it. So this contains the entire case, the entire investigation. Uh, it, everything is documented. Beginning. Answers to all our questions about Peter's death could be in that book. But don't get too excited, because Detective Moharo won't let Alan see it. Peter's murder is still an open investigation. In fact, the LAPD reopened the case in 2008, thanks to author Josh Frank's book about Peter, In Heaven, Everything is Fine. Anyway, Detective Moharo has agreed to let Alan ask him some questions, like, did they find any prints at the crime scene? There was a fingerprint investigation conducted, and that's typical of all homicides. That That's one of the first things we do is try and fingerprint anything that looks obvious. I cannot say if we did or didn't find any, but we did follow up on that. Oh, that's really helpful. Even though the case is an old one, there's still reason to believe it could be solved. A lot has changed in the years since Peter died. In 1983, DNA tests weren't widely available. They wouldn't be used in court until 1986. But Detective Moharo confirms that the investigators did eventually test evidence for DNA. I could only say that we, in part of uh, revisiting this case, that was part of the process, that we tested for DNA. I can't tell you what the results were yet, either way. Then, before Alan can ask a follow-up question, Detective Moharo gets a call. I apologize. I'm just going to return one message. I just got a call as we spoke. I'm just checking in. Okay. Oh, no. I do have to go. I apologize. So I I, I will have to go. And I I apologize. Okay. I think this is a little bit short. There's been an officer-involved shooting. Hey, Greg, I just got the message. I apologize for that. Uh, uh, Are you heading out there? Yeah. Green Owen's mouth. Wow. Give me the cross again. Victory in Owen's mouth. All right, I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Bye. I guess this is how it is when you're a cop. One minute you're talking about a cold case, the next you're off on a hot one. It's going to be all over the news. Uh, there was a stolen car, a little chase, and the suspect and the officers shot it out. An officer <laughs> was hit, but I think he may be okay. Oh my gosh. So that's why I got to run out. Yes. Okay. And he does. And unfortunately, he takes the case file with him, leaving Alan and us with that same old question. Who killed Peter Ivers? Without straight answers from the cops, a lot of theories have sprung up over the years about who might have killed Peter and why. Peter had friends and some enemies in the punk scene, thanks to New Wave Theater. He had Hollywood and comedy friends and lots of women friends, some who were maybe more than friends. He had recently moved from the safety of Laurel Canyon to downtown Los Angeles. After Peter died, theories about what happened to him cropped up everywhere. The cops who investigated Peter's murder seemed to have concluded that Peter was just some poor, maybe queer, starving artist who lived in the wrong place and paid the price for it. But there's more to the story. Money, drugs, robbery, love, heartbreak, jealousy, punks, sleazy Hollywood types, 
and Samoan drug gangs? Today we're going to run down the theories of the case, some wild and others that may hit closer to home. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second-grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, 
and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Peter was friends with a lot of Hollywood big shots, but he never really made it himself. Towards the end of his life, he struggled financially. One of the reasons he moved downtown was because of the cheap rent. Peter's money problems coincided with some other changes in his behavior. To some of Peter's closest friends, he seemed different, a little lost, and more into drugs. Here's John Leon, Peter's Harvard buddy. He often came to my house, I mean, often, once a month, and, uh, you know, he'd get high and pass out and stuff like that. I was always worried about Peter in the last couple of years of his life because he was he was too high and he was hanging out with people that I didn't trust. All of this leads to the first theory about why Peter might have been killed. I'll let Alan explain. There was a rumor that Peter had gotten into dealing drugs, so some people speculated that he was killed over a drug debt. Allegedly, Peter's supplier was a gang from Northern California, and Peter's death was punishment for not paying up. Among his other bad virtues was stiffing people on drug deals. That's Ed Oaks. He's one of the people who believes the Samoan drug gang theory. Peter owed $25,000 on a drug deal that went bad to a Samoan gang from, from Redwood City. Some other people agree, like Peter Rafelson, although his version of the story is a bit different. There was a rumor and a theory that Peter had been working with the Sikhs and doing one of the largest drug deals of the time with MDMA from up north. And I can't remember, he may have shown me a massive bag of pills at some point. I definitely never saw Peter dealing pills or doing any hard drugs. Blow came out, I never saw Peter touch it. I did. Also, Samoan drug gang, Sikh drug gang, it doesn't make sense. Come on, take it all with a grain of salt. Anyway, if you recall, the day before Peter died, he picked up a big check for a screenplay he wrote. He was going to use that money to pay off his debt. But then he left the money in Rafelson's car and lost it. That's what Rafelson says anyway. I, I, I was not... I didn't know the details, but something was going on. And and potentially there was pressure to pay people money. And that money that he had, he was feeling probably very relieved that it could have saved his situation and maybe his life. <laughs> and the day he gets it and then he loses it and then it's all goes downhill and then the guy winds up dead that night. Like these things, I don't think these are all coincidences. Part of the reason the drugs theory seems possible is because of where Peter was living when he died. Essentially a squat, a loft downtown. Here's Gary Blasey, 
an expert of that time in downtown L.A.'s history. I would say in 1982, 83, there was really a, um, a, a real transition point in uh, what was happening, particularly in Skid Row. So basically, the number of people on the streets really exploded in, in between 82 and 84. Um, I mean, tripled, quadrupled, something like that. And Skid Row was basically being populated from people uh, who were driven out of South Central by the sort of economic disasters that had, be- that had befallen the manufacturing industry in South L.A. This also overlapped with the time that the crack cocaine epidemic was spreading. There were addicts on Skid Row, alcoholics, you know, drug, drug users of various kinds. Either way, this is all speculation. Yeah, Peter liked to smoke pot, and maybe he was smoking too much, like John Leon said. But he wasn't known to do hard drugs. I never saw him do any. And there's little evidence that he was dealing, at least that we could find. But the location of Peter's loft near Skid Row leads us to the second theory about why Peter was killed. It's the theory the cops themselves eventually gravitated towards, which brings us back to Detective Moharo. After he ran out on the first interview, Alan eventually tracked him down again. And Alan cuts right to the chase. After looking through all the evidence, what does the detective really think happened? There is the belief was, and this is even part of the investigation that was conducted by the original investigators back in the 80s, that there may have been a connection between a serial burglar that was operating in that area and did fall to his death uh, short distance from where Mr. Ivers was residing, where this crime scene occurred. Uh, so that, that was the belief. The original theory from police is that a burglar broke into Peter's loft. Peter woke up and the burglar killed him. They believe on the night of March 2nd, 1983, Peter came home after a fight with David Jove. He made a few phone calls, including to Lucy Fisher. At some point, he fell asleep in bed with his clothes on. Then, according to what Maharo told me, a burglar broke in, killed Peter, and stole his audio equipment. Some people think this theory makes sense, like artist Stephen C. Meyer, who also lived downtown at the time. I had her again. This is all secondhand. It's all, you know, it could all be BS. But from what I heard, um, that it was, apparently there were some, there was a building. There was a building that used to be next to Peter's loft, but it had recently been torn down. And that left Peter's building more open and accessible. And there was some train tracks between the building. And that building had just been raised, torn down. And the construction company hadn't put up a new security, cyclone security fence. So now there's this empty construction site, and then there's the building where Peter's loft was, with the lights on late into the night. Maybe a good target for a desperate person. For potential thieves, Peter's loft was a gold mine. Over the years of making his own music, Peter had amassed a fancy collection of studio recording equipment. Personally, when my other musician friends were running out of money, they would just sell their gear. But I guess Peter didn't do that. Anyway, it's all there in his loft, which people tended to randomly wander through. I had heard that Peter Ivers' studio had had such an encounter, uh, 
and that someone had come up into the studio and they had opened the door to the studio and there's a guy standing right there and they took off. This incident concerned one of Peter's roommates enough that he installed a home security system, uh, sort of. And from what I heard, someone, I don't know if it was Peter or Peter Taylor, who was a roommate of Peter Ivers, decided that, oh, I've got a circus mallet. Maybe we should keep it here and lean it up in the kitchen here uh, in the corner as uh, for defense. This is the mallet that most people suspect was the murder weapon. And it was just sitting there in the loft, and a burglar could have easily picked it up. Not a bad theory, right? But there's one problem. The burglar, the cops think, may have broken into Peter's place and killed him. He died. Apparently, he fell off a catwalk a week after Peter's death. Detective Maharo showed me a picture of the burglar laying dead on the floor. He fell off the catwalk, and he's laying spread eagle in a pool of blood, dead. And Maharo said, we think this is the guy that killed Peter. They thought he was the suspect because he was supposedly committing a lot of burglaries in the area. But, you know, I don't know if I believe that. I think they may have just wanted to wash their hands. Case over. We don't have to deal with this bullshit anymore. Was he the same person who supposedly broke into Peter's loft? No one can say for sure. But it's good enough for the cops. So that, that was the belief then, just based on a certain, I, I'm not, I can't get into the details, but based on uh, certain circumstances involving, I mean, it, I, I tend to sort of agree with the original investigators. Could it have possibly been a random burglary? Maybe. But there's another theory. What if it was someone who had a vendetta against Peter? Could it have possibly been someone in the scene? Peter's annoying behavior on New Wave Theater did piss off a lot of people. There was one dude in particular that some people have pointed to as a possible suspect, a bouncer at the Zero. His street name was Earwig. Earwig, a.k.a. Earache, a.k.a. Eric or Quake. A lot of names for one giant, scary guy. He had platinum blonde hair, shaved on the sides, had a completely neo-Nazi vibe about him. Tequila Mockingbird didn't trust the guy either. Uh, that guy was a white supremacist, and he didn't like Jews. I avoided, I'm not going to hang so out with white supremacists, when, and I don't like drug addicts. Other people had a lot to say about this upstanding citizen. I know that he was a rapist because he definitely tried to rape other girls that we were mutually dating. I think he got away with that a lot. So I know for a fact he was sexually abusive and violent when he got high. He looked like Frankenstein and Rooker Howard's baby. He just seemed like someone who could slit your throat for the fun of it. He had keep on sucking tattooed on his stomach. That last voice you heard is Bob Forrest, a street punk turned addiction counselor. He's talking to Alan Sachs about Earwig. I knew him very, very well. One time, like when we were kids, like we would buy speed from him. He had this rehearsal studio on Highland and, and Yucca or whatever, Highland and Yucca. Bob and his friends would buy whatever they could get their hands on from Earwig. Speed, Coke, heroin, uh, you get the point. 
And then me and Anthony Flea lived at Hollywood Boulevard and, and Whitley. That's right. You're in so we had to take the drugs across where there's cops everywhere and drugs were really illegal. So we started asking him if we could do it there. And I remember he very specifically said, yeah, you can do it here, but if you go out, I'm not resuscitating you. I don't give a fuck. I'm putting you in a shopping cart and I'll push you up on Hollywood Boulevard. The thing is, I had heard that the reason that Eric killed Peter was because what he said was that he was a crazy faggot and he was giving punk rock a bad name. And nothing could be further than the tr from the truth. A violent, homophobic, neo-Nazi certainly sounds like an easy murder suspect. But as it turns out, this theory is only about as credible as the burglar theory. It's a lot of conjecture, fucking storytelling. Also, I don't want to get too gory, but I just want to say that Peter was bludgeoned to death with a mallet. And this is an intense way to kill someone. Think about it. The killer would have to get really close to the victim, which means that the victim either trusted the person or it was a surprise attack. This brings us to the next theory. Could it have been a crime of passion? Peter was a charmer and really good looking. People were drawn to him, women in particular, or as Tequila puts it, Peter was Mr. Kundalini Yoga sex god. So he had all these women losing their minds over him. And I don't know whether my mom had an affair with Ivers or what their relationship was. That's Peter Rafelson again. Peter Ivers actually met him through Rafelson's mom. As I recall, we used to go to Dupar's at the farmer's market on Sundays. I always wondered exactly what the relationship to my mother was, and that leaves some imagination. But certainly, he was a regular. Peter was messing around with many, many women in the Beverly Hills area. And their husbands might not have liked what Peter was doing. So maybe Peter had lots of lovers, but one alleged relationship stands out. For years, nobody ever asked me, and I never said anything about the whole um, relationship that Peter had with Ann Ramos. I was a little annoyed with Peter because he was sleeping with uh, a married woman. Oh my God. He was sleeping with Harold Ramis's wife, and I was like, oh my God, if, what if he finds out? Alan Sachs actually had the nerve to ask Anne about this when he interviewed her a couple years ago. Were you involved romantically with Peter? Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. I, I feel like our relationship was really um, our personal, you know, thing. And I, I think he was a one, you know, so wonderful. And um, I had a great appreciation for him. I don't really want to answer that question. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Whether they were romantic or not, Peter and Anne were certainly very close. According to Rod Falconer, sometimes Peter felt guilty about his closeness with Anne. He was Harold's friend, after all. Peter was not happy with it. He felt bad about that. 
he liked Harold. Harold Ramos was helping Peter. He was giving him financing for Vitamin Pink. So that made Peter feel Peter was a very conscionable person. And um, he couldn't, he, you know, he felt very uncomfortable. Harold loved Peter, too, and even supported him artistically and financially. Rod said that Peter felt torn between his feelings for Anne and his loyalty to her husband. He just didn't want to be having an affair, you know, because this was a close friend of his. And and more than just a friend, I mean, you know, someone who believed in him and so forth, Uh, which is hard to come by in this world. After Peter died, Rafelson was looking around in his car and says he found Peter's day planner. It was under the seat where Peter had allegedly tucked the money he lost. When I went and I found this binder, which I think was in my car, the the day planner, somebody who told me said, oh my God, do not, whatever you do, do not give that to the police. You You can't, you cannot let anybody see this. Why? The planner tracked Peter's life, who he spent his time with, and what he did every day. If Peter was having an affair with someone... The evidence for that could have been in his planner. Because it was maybe where all the dead bodies were buried, so to speak, where all of the numbers, where all of the information, where all of the fucking affairs and secrets were kept. It was part diary, part calendar, and part phone book. Somebody had told me, it may have been her. By her, he's referring to Anne Ramis. Do not, whatever you do, whatever they say, you don't know anything. Like, they were literally telling me to essentially hide, prevent as evidence of anything. But even if Rafelson hid the planner, it was too late. Peter's escapades were in plain sight. The cops thought Harold was a crazed, jealous husband who killed his wife's lover. Common motive. But the cops questioned Harold and then released him soon after. And all they probably learned from the interview is that Harold, like the rest of us, adored Peter. I mean, a couple of months after Peter died, Harold used his song, Little Boy Sweet, in the soundtrack for National Lampoon's Vacation. Whatever might have transpired between Peter and the women of Hollywood, the crime of passion theory didn't hold the police's attention for long. Of all the theories, a drug deal gone wrong, a pissed-off punk, a botched robbery, or a jealous husband, the cops felt robbery was the most plausible explanation. And that was their explanation when they set the case aside. But to all of us, that theory felt very flimsy. I don't, I don't think that this was some random thing. I, I think that there was probably um, some illicit business, and it went bad. I have to say that to this day, it really, really bothers me that this is an unsolved case. I don't get it. I don't, I just, it's, I mean, it kills me that somebody's out there or was out there, (laughs) um, Maybe they're gone now. I don't know. That took his life. Lucy Fisher, Peter's longtime girlfriend, felt the same way. It's part of why she hired a P.I. to look into his murder. 
Unfortunately, that PI has since passed away, so we don't know what he learned about Peter's death. There is, of course, one last theory that we haven't talked about, one that, as far as we know, the cops never fully explored. Could it be David Jove that killed Peter? Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. 
What a play. What a trip. What a dip in the unknown. On behalf of our producer, All World Stage, this is your all-too-human host, Harbor Boy Ivers, wishing you a hostile honeymoon in the hermitage of Harpocrates. That's episode 25 of New Wave Theater. It's Peter's last monologue. After he recorded the episode, Peter quit New Wave Theater and had that blowout fight with David Jove. A few hours later, he was found dead. And David's behavior after Peter's death was, well, pretty fucking strange. Even after Peter died, every time I'd see him, he'd be like... (laughs) Here's Tequila Mockingbird talking with Alan Sachs. And I got a phone call saying, you're next. And I said, come on over. I'm waiting for you. That's what he said? Yes, I did. When he said you're next, he was he implying that there was... Oh, the new wave theater murders! <laughs> that everybody involved in the show was going to be murdered. That's what his was, little shtick was, was, and we hated him. But that wasn't even the strangest thing David did in the days after Peter's murder. Earlier, we spoke about the crime scene. It was a total madhouse. People were wandering in and out, and some of his stuff went missing. Coincidentally, after that awful day, visitors to David Jove's cave saw two new items amongst the Crowley books and pentagrams. First, a pink sequin jacket, the one Peter wore on New Wave Theater. David claimed Peter gave it to him. Tequila, she calls bullshit. Peter would have never let him have that jacket. Never, because that was his favorite jacket. So that was like super sketchy to me, because there's no way that he would have ever given him that. And the other item that made its way to the cave? The blanket covering Peter's body. Ken Dow remembers seeing it. He was a regular at the cave, and Jove took a liking to him quickly because of Ken's curiosity about, you guessed it, the occult. He was a chaos magician. He was in love with Aleister Crowley and all of that kind of occult stuff. What he liked to do was sort of blow people's minds, do something that seemed magical. Sometime after Peter died, Ken was hanging out there with Jove. We were talking about Peter, and he said, I need need to show you something. David's um, surprise for Ken is on the second floor. So David pulls down the ladder into the upper level to retrieve it. Anyway, and he went, you know, pulled the thing down the you know it was always like you had to pull a ladder down to get up in there so he pulled it down and he got up went up in the and just and just like leaned out to the thing and po- and poked the the blanket down at me and said this is this is it this is the, the blanket I got from Peter's bed that day and I could see blood dried blood on it. it's brown and and was like weeping with tears and this was this is his blood this is the blanket this is the blanket i got from peter this is his blanket and i sleep with it every night jove's daughter lily hayden corroborated ken's story on a podcast called rarefied air here's a clip my dad slept with peter's bloody blanket that he had been bludgeoned on bludgeoned to death on My dad slept with that bloody blanket for the rest of his life. I don't remember anything that happened after that moment. I don't... Why the thought never occurred to me, oh my God, that's evidence that the cops need. And I could have gone to the cops and said, hey, uh, this guy, 
I don't know if he did it or what, but he's got this blanket. It never even occurred to me to go tell the cops this. Some might say the cops should have looked at the guy who had just been professionally dumped by the victim, who was obsessed with death and known for violent outbursts, and who people say cozied up with Peter's bloody blanket. How creepy is that? And some might say the person who killed Peter Ivers could have been the guy with the most to lose. So, was it David Jove? Could it have been the Acid King? That's coming up next time. Until then, see ya. Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs. It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheris. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana. And the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Canrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Show artwork by Michael Dare. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.